Hello everyone, welcome to Ale of a Time. This week we are speaking to Will Tatchell from Van Diemen Brewing down in Tasmania. Really good to chat to Will and learn all about farm and brewing life in Tassie. He is one of the, the very few brewers in the world that's growing his own hops, growing his own grain, malting his own grain, growing his own fruit, doing doing pretty much as much as he possibly can to make his beers unique to his part of the world. We join the chat just as Will is telling us all about one of his recent beers, which is the Elderflower Spontaneous Ferment. This one uh, is one that I, I was drinking also at the time, and I, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, if you want to jump over and watch the actual chat via using the video, uh, and there's some little bits and pieces that you might have missed uh, that has been edited out of the audio, jump over to the Beer Together YouTube channel where we're streaming Monday nights at 8.30pm. In the meantime, enjoy this chat with Will, and uh, yeah, we'll see you next Monday or next week on the podcast. Cheers. Um, it's certainly it's something. Elderflower is obviously a um, it's a um, it's a character, it's a flavour and stuff that um, you immediately notice. So that's probably why we've always had this idea of using it um, in a beer, but it's always been quite a prominent flavour that we were always um, just a little bit careful or wary about what the flavour would actually do uh, to the beer, to the finished beer. And then obviously to the, um, to the beer when we're brewing with it and stuff and aging it in barrels. So it's, um, it's a dominant flavor and I'm not, I normally shy away from dominant flavors. I like, um, a fair bit of balance and drinkability and no one character to shine through. So, um, it's probably breaks from the trend a little bit for what we normally do. Um, for people that have watched a lot of beer together in lockdown, um, they might remember a chat that I had with Chad Parker about cocktails. And elderflower was kind of a, a huge trend in the cocktail world because you could use elderflower syrup and everything and it would kind of uh, fix all your problems. But when it comes to beer, I don't think you can hide that much with, with elderflower in a beer, can you? No, you can't, no. no. And that was, that was always the danger with brewing with it and probably, the, as I said, the hesitation with, um, with actually um, putting it into a beer to begin with. How do you use elderflower? Oh, well... I don't know if there's a right or wrong answer for that. I can tell you how we used it. <laughs> there's a we um we got a stack of elderflower trees uh, up on the farm that we didn't plant. They've always been there, um, and at this time of year, they're pretty prolific. There's another patch of elderflowers we drive past uh, to the brewery every day, um, and so that was sort of the impetus to to utilise. And there was this fantastic resource that we could tap into and. Um, what we did was we actually we had a burst of cold weather um, December last year, um, which is out like it falls outside of what our normal spontaneous um, season is. We're normally trying to do it in the bridging seasons of um, spring and autumn, as as it's traditionally been done for those cooler evenings. Um, but we got a burst of, of cold weather, unsurprisingly, in Tassie um, at the start of December. And it sort of it was it was the the blossom of the elderflower was ripe and ready to go, and so into the cool ship we actually um, put uh, around two kilos of uh, 
elderflower blossom and let it steep in there overnight as the, as the temperature dropped and the, the wort uh, temperature dropped and then um, racked it into oak barrels the next morning along with the residual elderflower that was in there. And um, it sat around for, well, it actually then went through fermentation, um, the most rapid fermentation that we've seen on a spontaneous beer. It, it hit terminal gravity at um, after three months, which we're normally looking at, Nothing, no action happening in barrel until sort of six to nine months of flavour generation and um, gravity sort of really starting to drop. So this was, I don't know if it was climatic conditions. I don't know if it, there was something on the flowers that potentially attributed to that fermentation happening a lot quicker. But, um, yeah, I think that's when you taste it, Luke, there's that dry um, effervescent character, which is, um, is largely in part to that um, rapid fermentation. There's been a couple of elderflower lambics. Um, I can't remember who did them now. Lindemans did one, I think. Well, they've done every other fruit. So yeah, um, and and that was always one of my favourites. And I'm immediately kind of recalling that you know that that sense of of lambic, um, which is obviously you know where you're getting your inspiration from. Yep. Um, you talked about seasons just then as well. Uh, first question is how close does your climate mirror? Brussels or, or, you know, so that part of Belgium where lambics are made, do you know? Uh, off the top of my head, I wouldn't know. I, I can't, I know Tassie sits between the 40th and 42nd parallel. I don't know what Belgium is. Yeah, right. probably, I reckon they're probably slightly higher um, because they do, they get, they get more snow than what we do. I guess if they grow hops, you guys grow hops. Yeah. It's probably a, hmm. I, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be too dissimilar. I don't reckon it'd be bang on the same, though. So how do you know what the right conditions are? Like, and, and I guess how closely are you watching the weather during the season that you're going, all right, today I'm going to have to brew and then put something into the cool ship? Yeah, um, we, well, I focus on the weather pretty heavily. Um, that's largely down to what's been done previously with, with Lambic Brewers and um, what they've done historically. But then it's also um, what we've been brewing these for six and a half, seven years. And so we've got a nice little back catalogue of understanding of um, what works, what doesn't. Um, so we take a weather map, a snapshot, 72 days. Or if we're going to brew something, a spontaneous beer, um, we take a weather snapshot, a 72-hour window of what occurs on the lead-up to um, brew day. Um, so that we can then subsequently look back and see um, whether or not a wind strength or a wind direction or um, a particular temperature and things uh, does make a significant difference. So, um, I mean, even at the moment, I'm looking to try and fit in potentially another spontaneous brew before Christmas, um, and that's that'll be largely dependent upon whether or not we can get below four degrees overnight um, between now and then. Now, as I said... We're Tasmania, so I'm pretty sure something should be able to sneak along uh, at some stage in the future. So I remember chatting to uh, Costa from Last Irene and his experiments with cool ships, and he was talking about experimenting outside of the, the months um, to, to see what he was picking up on. I think he said some 30-degree days. Do, do you remember that, Dave? Yeah, I remember he wanted to try and uh, replicate the same, well, more or less the same brew with the cool ship in different temperatures, different positions in his um, 
at, at the brewery just to try and, I guess, plot the variances that each of those elements would bring. Um, I think the biggest example he had of that was the Wild Trappel. Mm. He had two batches. It was fermented pretty cool and one that was fermented really hot. And I think the hot, um, the hot ferment was like a standout, awesome batch. So um, mm. I'd be interested to like follow up with him about that one, actually. Yeah, so well, when it comes to yours, have you sort of experimented out of those windows? And um... Well, we're, pro- we're probably getting a few more cooler days than 30 degrees. <laughs> we're probably somewhat limited there. Uh, it's probably something that it's, – it's probably the next step for us. The logical step is to brew completely out of season uh, and not necessarily be dictated – um, as heavily by the, the temperatures overnight and stuff. Um, again, it's, it's probably just building up to that understanding of, the, of what we've done previously, um, the expectation of what might potentially happen, even though that we've probably got no idea in the, at the end of the day. Um, it's more of a case, more a case of making sure that we're not making a huge mistake by going to put thousands of litres of beer into other barrels and then it not um, eventuating to where we where we actually want it. So I think it's a, it's a progressive um, curve that we're probably heading towards anyway, yeah. Um, I guess what's the reason for the, the cooler months? What are you sort of trying to encourage and avoid? Uh, if, again, historically, if the temperature drops below four degrees overnight, there or thereabouts, um, or anywhere between sort of one and one and six degrees. Uh, what we tend to find, and what's been found historically, is that uh, there's a favourable, there's still a favourable number of um, yeasts floating around in the air, um, but there's a minimisation of unfavourable yeasts and bacteria. So, as far as a ferment profile goes, you're picking up the best of of what's potentially about. Now, that's what's been done historically in Belgium and stuff. So, whether or not it translates to um, Tasmania or Melbourne or Sydney or wherever um, you, you're inoculating these spontaneous uh, batches. Um, that's again where we leverage back onto what we've learned in the past and the, and the experience that we've had. And um, yeah, so working outside of those to, to see whether or not there is a, a marked difference on, on fermentation or final character or, or even fermentation times. It's quite interesting. You, know, the, you said, how long have you been sort of experimenting with this? Did you say seven years? Yeah, about seven years. Um, and there's still so many unknowns with it all. Um, and, you know, I guess that's with all of beer, isn't there? There's, yeah. Everyone's still trying to work out what the hell all this stuff's doing. And I think that's probably one of the things that drew me to, to these styles of beers. Um, one, as a drinker, as a, as a young bloke, um, these, these styles of beers were just, they blew me away. They were just fascinating to... To get something in a 750ml bottle um, that's collected dust on a shelf somewhere and um, see the vintage on it and you open it up and it's it's the delivered um, uh, character and flavour and aromas that would just weren't, weren't existing in um, beer styles produced, being produced in Australia and stuff. So that's probably where it's sowed for me. But then um, subsequently, obviously, the, the farming element that we have on the, on the farm and... Um, it's not black magic, but it's this, as you said, the sense of unknown and, and what we can potentially create is a, is a sort of a, a drawing, a lure for me, and um, it's fun. You mentioned a dusty bottle on the shelf that you kind of pick up, and was there one in mind or one that, like, is the moment for you? 
No, I've never had I've never had that epiphany beer that um, that sort of set us in motion. It was I know as a young bloke I'd sort of um, I'd tried every mainstream beer on the market by the time I was eighteen. Um, so by the time I was eighteen, I was sort of looking to behind shelves or um, in the obscure back corner that used to be the imported section or um, whatever it was. So. I was always um, trying to progress further and understand what was out there and things, and we just didn't have the um, options of what, what there is today. So from a consumer point of view today, it's fantastic. Um, but, um, yeah, I think we were, I was just always, I was always, curiosity will always get the better of me. I think that's, that's probably the, the, the fact of the matter. I remember um, a friend of ours uh, moved to New Zealand a couple of years back and he was traveling through a random small town and stopped at a random bottle shop and found like a, a Lou Pep uh, vintage Cantillon just like on the shelf with a cake layer of dust on it. With no indication of how it ever made it there. And I think he ended up like there was maybe six there and he just he clearly just cleaned them out. He's just like, this is incredible stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, I can remember doing that early on and, and regrettably, I didn't sit on any of them, and I don't think I appreciated them quite for what they were back then. So it's, um, I know that if there's ever a chance that that would happen again, I'd do exactly the same and grab the six and drink one, put the other five away. Um, I guess the fortunate thing now, as you said, there's a lot more availability. You know, there is at least maybe two stores, three stores in my 5K radius where I can get Lambic. We've got incredible producers. We've got the, the Blobfish behind us there. You are at Blobfish, weren't you? Yeah. Yep. Um, and I think it's so exciting to see these styles happening in Australia and taking so many leaps forward. I think it's just it's a progression um, of consumer understanding. Um, as styles, people are no longer... Or, people are starting to learn more and more about beer, and that's largely on the back of the food um people are more uh, much more broader in their discovering of food um styles or origins and stuff and i think beer is very much piggybacked on the back of that with the with the excessive amount of flavors that we can harness in beer much more so and i'm not saying this just as a brewer but much more so than say a wine or a um, whiskey or a cider and stuff we have a plethora of um sort of um characteristics and flavour profiles that we can use, whether it be stylistically or um, fruit additions or yeasts. Or, um, so I think people are, people are understanding that and, and that sense of discovery and things allows people to, to sort of explore the beer world a bit more. Dave, how's your one going? Really good. It's really like, uh, it's kind of it's very vibrant. So this is um, white peach and nectarine. Well, they're all obviously all from the farm. Um, can we talk about the farm for a minute? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I just want to hear all about it. To be honest. Well, what do you want to know? Start from the start, I say. <laughs> uh, well, I suppose it, it, to get, if you want to start from the start, it goes back to um, growing up on a farm where we used to grow malting barley. Um, and as a kid growing up, I had no idea what that was. I just knew that we grew the barley and it sort of popped up five, six months after we planted it. And the head, the best day of the year was when the headers came in and um, harvested it all and then it went off to, unbeknownst to me, Bogues and Cascade. 
Um, and the difference is there's a year how they have malting quality, which is nice and plump, low protein and, and sort of the better grade stuff. And then you've got food, uh, feed grade barley. And we never grew feed grade barley. It was always malting barley. And as a kid, I just didn't understand that difference. So growing up on the farm, that was sort of the, the, a slight little link to the brewing game. Um, school, uni, um, did a science degree at uni, um, partook in a bit of product research whilst at uni. Um, and then realised that agriculture probably wasn't a feasible um, career path back in the early 2000s with, the, with how prevalent the drought was and we didn't have the biggest farm in the world so it, um, it was probably a chance to look sideways and, and tack sideways and um, brewing sort of raised its head as um, not too dissimilar to, to agriculture. It was still had those intrinsic agricultural uh, links and things so I changed a few subjects in the degree and, and focused a little bit more on uh, microbiology and, and a bit of chemistry and a bit of business stuff and um, popped out the other side with a with a science degree or an ag science degree and then um, went to England as a brewer, worked over there, learnt the trade and things and then came back here, started up Van Damon in 2009 and then at the time we set the brewery up on the farm but the farm, um, it wasn't, there wasn't a... a um, moment where we said um right and at some point down the track we'll be we'll be leveraged then leveraging the farm to what we are now it's um it was a far more organic and um sort of a well we can do this we can grow barley we can we put we put hops in relatively quickly after after setting up the brewery largely because of the we, we've got it on a bend of the driveway as we drive up every day and um, for the romanticism of seeing these beautiful hop vines um, growing um, sort of six, eight inches every day and you see the progression. So, um, And we've done a fair bit of work in there to, to increase the yield and, and make it feasible now. Um, but, yeah, I think it was, look, six, seven years ago where we actually sort of realised what's our... What, what, I think it was more of a case of once this second boom of, of breweries started to come into Australia that we needed to set ourselves apart and... And we sort of asked ourselves what what the point of difference was, and it was certainly the farm was a was a clear outlier on um, on what we could do differently to to other breweries in the country. Uh, a couple of questions from the chat. There's a Will Zabel. Um, he's asking about the green green gauge trees, and if you're going to be making more beer with it. Uh, yes, we are. Will yes. What's a green gauge tree? Uh, green gauges are. <laughs> Not the long version or the short version. They're French plums. They're essentially French plums, um, but we call them green gauges in um, Victoria and Tasmania and nowhere else in the. Uh, I think they called it in England as well, but they're essentially a um, a French plum. Yeah. Uh, and Judd Owen, who's a, probably another name familiar to us, uh, how do you curate such a top-notch social media presence while working fourteen hours a day on a farm? No. Uh, well, you, if you, when you're working by yourself on the farm, you've got to chat to someone and you, you can't always be on the phone. So it, you put up something and hope that someone bites back and normally Judd sends me something back. So, um, Curious to know, like, what does your day look like? Because most brewers and have a pretty defined day. Most farmers, uh, they're pretty all over, a little bit all over the place, but you're malting grain as well you're you're doing um, i don't know what else on the farm what 
What is an average Will Tatchell day? There is no average Will Tatchell day, Luke. Um, uh, as a farmer, farmers are pretty much just problem solvers. Um, you can have the best laid plans in the world and um, all you need is uh, livestock to get out or a fence to go down or an irrigation pump not to work or something to be completely thrown out or a piece of machinery to, to break down and it's um, you've got to deal with it and it might set you back um, a period of time. I think the, the biggest thing that's helped um, me and us is w- with this transition over to the amount of farm work that we or the, the amount of farm things that we leverage is that we've actually reduced our annual production um, and so therefore we're not brewing at 95% capacity through the brewery. Um, we've probably flicked back to uh, 75 80% and so what that does is it doesn't, it doesn't place these um, huge production um, schedules that we need to chase or that we need to hit. So there's a little bit of flexibility there in which we can can utilise to do um, whether it be a spontaneous beer or an estate beer or um, malting or whatever. So I think that helps. That time is in with these beers. Time is a critical factor, and I'm blatantly aware of that and, and making sure that we're not um, extending ourselves too far. So what is the main, so it's mostly grain out of the farm. So is that still the family farm? Yep, yep. Yeah, right. So yep. mostly grain, uh, you've got livestock you mentioned. What, what, what happens to that? Uh, we eat it. Oh, yeah. sorry. We, 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 they grow nice and big, whether it be sheep or cattle. We've got, we got rid of cattle four years ago, um, largely because they made a bit of a mess um, during the wet winters and stuff, but we got... We got that much feed at the moment that um, it's not funny. So we got there were ten cattle that we had brought on to the place because they're worth um, a small gold mine at the moment. So we we only got ten in, but they're already doing a good job. And hopefully the prices stay high and we get rid of those in a, in a little bit after they've eaten a bit of grass and things. Um, we're just about to offload best part of four hundred odd lambs um, for everyone to eat lamb over over Christmas lunch and things. Um, we got to cut. There's two pigs that run around that feed on the spent grains from the brewery, and um, they're just like dogs. I'll roll over, and you can scratch their um, pork belly, and know that, it, know that at some point, or for Christmas lunch, we're going to have hand massage, hand massage pork belly, and some nice hams and stuff. So um, we were we were talking about goats yesterday, but I don't think we're going to get goats. So yeah, there's there's enough to do. I just realised I have no idea how a farm works. And I, I mean, I grew up going and visiting my friend's I, farms. I can tell that with the question. Well, like, I, and I've spent tons of time on farms, but it was always just dicking around in the, the hay shed and, like, probably rolling the bales of hay and dicking around on a four-wheeler and not having to worry about... <laughs> well, my actual farm work being yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> so, Will, when you got back from the UK, was your focus with the farm solely to sort of um, uh, utilise it to sustain the brewing? brewing no, no, not at all, Dave. It was, um, uh, we looked at, when we came back from the UK, we looked at setting up the brewery in Melbourne, um, obviously closer to a bigger market and um, at the time it, um, it wasn't, as, it was nowhere near as saturated as what it is now. Um, 
But in the end, we decided uh, to do it in Tassie because uh, my wife and I, we were both Tasmanians and we knew that we were going to come back at some point and, and potentially start a family. So it sort of seemed a little bit ludicrous to start a business in Melbourne and then be moving back within five or ten years or something. So we then looked at um, industrial estates around the north of, of Tassie and stuff with the um, utilities and infrastructure that potentially came with that. Um, but in the end, we sort of were out at the farm one afternoon and, and realised that we had this perfect greenfield site that, um, that sort of had no limitations or um, sort of we could do what we want and, um, yeah, that was, that was, it was more the space that it provided rather than the, the, um, the leverage of, of being able to grow things and stuff. That certainly wasn't at the front of mind at that time. Um, I'd love to be romantic and say, yes, we were always pinning for, for where we are now. But no, it, as I said, it was, it's a very organic growth thing and um, things have just developed along the lines rather than um, driving hard to, to where we are now. Uh, so back to the beer that, you, that you're drinking, Dave. A um, mm. couple of fruits in it. These two beers um, I remember seeing on the, the press release or the, the bit of documentation you sent with them, two different ages in there. Is that correct, Will? And wild nectar. Yeah, between wild nectar yep. and and then yep. elderflower. Yep. Um, so pretty much both of them, both of them are, are lambic inspired fruit beers. Um, both of them are um, a majority uh, is young beer, so one year old beer. Um, the elderflower uh, is exclusively one year old beer. So normally, um, normally I wouldn't have expected to to be releasing less than one year old spontaneous beer, but. Um, what we've traditionally learnt and, and things is that the blends are, are where the complexity and the flavour um, develop and the byplay between those different aged beers. But the, uh, Elderflower is exclusively um, sort of 12-month-old beer. Um, the Wild Nectar, uh, we brewed the beer. Um, it went into barrels with the white peach and nectarine uh, and it was in there for 10 months in, in oak. Uh, we brought it out and then blended it back in with um, some two-year-old beer so to, to bring through some of that complexity. So the, the fruit flavour and the wild nectar was um, incredibly ripe and incredibly um, sort of pungent. So what we wanted to do was just blend it back, bring back a bit of the acidity um, and a bit more um, sort of palate depth so that we could showcase that fruit up front but then delve back into um, sort of some of that sour uh, acidity on the back palate. So hopefully that's what you're getting, Dave. Absolutely. It's really well balanced at the moment too. How do do these beers age um, and how much have you tested of, of your blends and, and what you're getting and how long should people keep them? Da- uh, Daniel, Lewis has, Daniel Lewis has said in the chat that he's got a few in the cellar of the green gauge still. So, uh, There's a bit, to, to, there's a couple of answers to that. One, we probably don't have the stock to, to test that. I know that there's a little bit of um, sort of older older vintages of these beers sitting in the cool room, so we're probably sitting on it um, at two degrees in the cool room. So it would be probably smart to bring some of that out and um, sort of age it at, at ambient temperature to see how it goes. Um, I've got no worry with them. I mean, we put a best before on these of five years, um, and that's a, that's a nominal date really. Um, I've got no problem with these sitting around for for quite some period of time. Um, I mean, some of it's some of the beer in some of these beers is is already three and a half years old by the time we we go to bottle it, and then it may potentially sit in um, bottle um, conditioning for 
nine to 12 months before we release it and um, trying to trying to make sure that it's where we want it. Um, and then once it goes out, as with all our beers, we essentially lose control over um, where it sits on a, on a shelf or in someone's house and things. So, um, but yeah, I think as far as styles of beers goes, I think these are probably the ones that, um, other than a big barley wine or a big imperial stout or something, I think these are, are probably well suited to um, sitting around for a period of time. Even even with the fruit element in them, I think they're they're going to change potentially slightly, um, but I don't think they're going to drift too far. Tell us about your malting experiments. We kind of mentioned it before, and um, it's somewhat recent. So you're now malting your own barley on site? Yep, yep. How do you do that? <laughs> oh, I can't give away trade secrets. <laughs> you put it all on social media. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, oh, look, we, we do it pretty rudimentary. We have, um, we have what I like to term a, a prototype setup where we can do um, 500 kilos at a time. Um, we're, we're steeping the grain in, a, in an IBC. Um, we've got some some jets under there that we that we, we blast through oxygen and, and CO two in the various phases of steeping. It's in the steeping tank for about two days, um, hydrating, um, going through a, a, a wet dry sort of um, process. It then goes out onto a floor uh, in the brewery. Um, we did have a germination bin, um, but we found that it wasn't. Um, doing the job, we found that the, the temperatures and during the germination being an exothermic reaction, um, I mean, we were essentially stewing some of the grain in there. That The temperatures were getting up to 45, 50 degrees. Um, and so if we didn't get to it in time, we were, we were oh, we ruined a couple of batches like that where we just didn't get the chance to turn it. So we now do it out on the floor. Um, that gives us the capacity to thin the grain out the bed so that we're, we're losing temperature much better or maintaining that sort of 18 to 20 degrees for germination. It's there for uh, probably five, six, seven days, depending on the, the ambient temperature and um, what sort of, what, um, whether or not we're doing, we've just started doing chip malt, which is um, a much easier malt to produce. So we're, we're only germinating for two to three days. Um, and then throwing it into the kiln rather than taking it out to, to full germination. Um, and then it goes into a, a kiln, um, a ghetto setup where there are wires everywhere. And I think if OHS came through, they wouldn't be too pleased. But it works. We have this, um, so we're able to do 500 kilos at a time. We're, we're churning out grain that's pretty consistent. That was always the challenge, was to, um, was to work out a way to do it consistently. Um, we didn't, much like brewing. Um, a beer. We don't want huge batch variation. Um, we needed to know what we were doing was consistent. So we've, we've sort of done that. Um, and we're now just starting to sort of, we have done for the last 12 months, started to um, use our own malt in our core range beers, um, which, is a, which is a bit of a, a stress that um, you're still not confident. Like it's much easier to pick up the phone and and call a supplier and get a spec sheet in and know exactly what's going to happen. Whereas the moment we're sort of transitioning in sort of 20, 30, 40% of our own malt, um, we sort of potentially start playing with fire. But at this stage, that's that's where we, we're after that consistency on the malting side of it so that we're confident um, utilising it and using it in the brewery. So the next step for that, us, is, um, oh, look, 
I'm hesitant to say getting bigger because that's a whole other kettle of fish. Um, I think probably just, again, nailing down the process. Um, we do, we've got a few variety trials of different barleys. Um, so really trying to work out what barleys, even historical um, sort of varieties and things, which ones malt better and then subsequently brew better. Um, that's, so, I mean, we grow schooner now. Um, which stew from Voyager Craft Molten, the Riverina, he he um, thankfully lent us or, or, got, or sold to us um, some seed a couple of years ago. And we found that that's a phenomenal grain or phenomenal variety of barley to, to malt with uh, and then brew with, um, much compared to the, some of the more modern varieties, which are grown as a commodity and yield is the biggest determining factor we're putting it into the ground we're after something like schooner which flavor is our um is our key um marker that we're we're trying to do and we have a very short feedback loop um we're able to to grow it we have full control over the growing full control over the multi and then brewing with it we've, we've got a very short feedback loop in knowing whether or not things are working so it's 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 nice it's nice to have that level of control. It's also a little bit risky um, in that we're, we're sort of, um, well, not out of the loop, but um, we're certainly not 100% our own grain at this stage. It's interesting you mentioned the spec, you know, reading the specs of the malt that you buy, and I know that there's a lot of brewers that are always kind of interested in, in learning more about the specs of their malt and, and how to understand what how it's all working. How do you understand that it's all working when you're, how do you know the specs of your own malt, I guess? is the You taste it? You eat it? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things. Having um, farmers are very farmers are very basic, um, visual, get-your-hands-dirty thing, and I think that, for me, works incredibly well. I know, I know where we've sown it. I know the paddock, the soil types that we've grown the barley in, the, the machinery operators that bring it through, the, um, how the silo's been cleaned and... Um, treated where we're where we're then subsequently malting it and things. So we we have this level of control and understanding. It's a bit like um, uh, understanding the uh, origins of your food. Um, I mean, I can tell you everything about the grain that we that we do and stuff, and that that's probably gives me confidence in that um, what we're doing, taking it the whole way through. Um, like we can tell, I can now tell pretty quickly if um, something's going wrong in the malting phase at any particular point, um, largely on flavour or aroma. Um, fortunately, it doesn't happen too often nowadays. But um, yeah, you you get a if once you when you're dealing with something on a day to day basis, you start to learn the, the intricacies and um, attributes that you're after and what you're not after. So another thing I wanted to ask you about was your your barrel setup. Um, from memory, you've got barrels kind of outside and uh, in ambient temperatures and and in the in the environment. And how does that work for you? Uh, we probably we've reduced the amount of um, barrels that we've got sitting outside nowadays, um, largely because they just dry out so quickly. Um, we we noticed we didn't we didn't lose a heap of beer um, because they dried out, but we certainly the age of the barrels um, or the, the the subsequent use of them once they've been outside was certainly less than something that we're sitting in under a, a shed or or inside. 
But again, it's like everyone's problem. Even though we're on the farm, we run out of space undercover. So that's what that's largely why we we we've always tried to work ahead of the game with regards to these spontaneous beers or whatever we've got in barrel, so that we do have a back catalogue in which to work back to. Um, so at that time, a couple of years ago, when we did have quite a few barrels outside, that was when we were going through a, a quite a um, brewing heavy period to try and get this um, program ahead of the game. Um, so that then now that we're starting to blend back in two and three year old stuff, we have a, a level of beer that we're able to do that. So that we're we're not um, we're not just having to grab what is there. We can actually start to pick and choose um, for, for attributes. So it sort of opens us up uh, that way. But yeah, we're trying to minimise what we're storing outside, or even now as we start to get a bit warmer, um, potentially moving or, or using some of those. We have noticed that the, the, the stuff that does sit outside um, certainly accelerates its ageing and fermentation, which is logical. So, yeah. Uh, when you say we, do you have a, a team helping you brew or it's just the farm crew or is it your family? It's a funny question. No, we don't. We used to have an assistant brewer, um, Stu, who's now or from Ocho, who now at Myers Gold, Um uh, and that was great. That was someone to bounce ideas off. But I think when I use we, um, I'm, probably t- I'm probably referring to myself in the business. Um, certainly my wife plays a big part in it. Um, my father, he does bits and pieces, although he's doing less and less. Um, he's probably our delivery driver. Uh, most of the time we're doing deliveries and stuff. So um, a day where it would take me six hours to do deliveries, he does in two because he doesn't get caught talking. Um, which is somewhat ironic given his name's Motor, as in Motor Mouth. Yeah, right. It's one of the core um, beers that you have. It is, it is. Um, so, yeah, so, no, we, as I said, we've, we've reduced reduction in the la- uh, production in the last three or so years um, to bring it back to a sustainable level so that uh, as well as all these other things that we're doing, we have the capacity to, to still work um, relatively well, um, whether it be me or... Um, yeah, most of the time it's just me. Um, now, there was another beer that you sent up uh, that you've just released at the moment that's there over my shoulder, uh, which I think Dave and I are going to save until we're hanging out drinking beers. Can you talk us through this one? Yeah, so Fence Line is a spontaneous beer that's um, a blend of one, two, and three-year spontaneous beer, um, but it doesn't. it's got no fruit in it, so it's just a straight spontaneous um, so yeah, so a blend of um, so this is a problem. These beers sometimes start um, sort of, or this one, yeah, four and a half years ago when we plant barley and it all goes in, and then it spends time in barrel and then bottle condition and stuff. I lose track of them, so I've got to go back through notes to um, to become reacquainted with them. It's like like running into an old girlfriend or something. Um, yeah, so. Uh, fence line for I can't you look you might have had one I'm not sure whether you did Dave unpredictable spring yeah um, it was a it was a spontaneous beer that we released about eighteen months ago and it was incredibly popular it was probably my favourite beer that we've produced in the brewery um, and for something that we did it was it was one of the first spontaneous releases that we did um, it just had this drinkability that I wasn't expecting to get out of one of our first releases. And we've always wanted to to try and recreate that, knowing that it's incredibly difficult to recreate these um, styles of beers. Um, 
And so what we've done with this, we try to recreate unpredictable screen, but bring up the level of um, sort of flavors and characters in the beer. Um, just a just a not unpredictable screen. We probably played a little safe, um, whilst it was thoroughly enjoyable. Um, just not to scare people off that, that first release. So. With this one, we've given ourselves a little bit more leeway to, to increase the funk, the acidity, um, so that the astringency that's in there, um, which is normally associated, associated with these styles of beers. So it's just it's up another um, step on the ladder of, of progressing towards the best beer in the world. Okay. And, and so plans for the future, the next, what, three or four years to make the best beer in the world? or No, no I think... Uh, isn't every brewer trying to do that? The moment we, well, I the wouldn't moment, say every brewer is trying to do that, but <laughs> the moment every, the moment any of us do that, we might as well give up and retire. You don't think it's possible to make the best beer? On, it's not possible, I don't think. Yeah, definitely. Oh, look, I think it, I think it's possible. Finding it now, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it's possible, but that's what we're all trying to do. Is you release something that's really good, but then you want to top it, so. To, to suggest that you've potentially done it is defeatist and, yeah, you might as well pack up shop and sell the brand and go and find something else to test your, your metal one. It's like the uh, superhero finally defeating the villain and then realising the villain was a big part of their life all along. Exactly. <laughs> <that>. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so thinking around the country, uh, if people want to try these beers or any of your beers, uh, how do you? How widely do your beers get out there? Uh, not very widely. We try and take, we try and keep all the good stuff to the little island. I like it. Um, no, look, we, we we send. There's a little bit that's gone into slow beer. Um, a little bit that's potentially making its way to beer cartel. Um, there's some stuff that's that's maybe going to South Australia. Um, but yeah, not too much. I mean, all of these three releases, we've only done a thousand bottles of them. Um, there's the odd keg here or there that we, we try and make sure we do for, for whether it be a launch night or a, um, tap takeover or something. So yeah, we're not, we're not working on these huge volumes and things. So therefore the, the easiest way is probably through the website and know that we're going to have stock of it, know that we're going to be able to get it out to you and, um, yeah, that's that's probably the easiest and the best place. So, as well as farming, malting, brewing, uh, you also do logistics out of a website as well. Yep. So that's impressive stuff. I'm trying to I'm trying to ship beers to our well, supporters, I, and I'm I struggling have, with, with with all these new releases and stuff. Um, I do understand why dispatch officers earn their money. It's a bane of my life. For anyone, please order beer, but God. Well, you just as you said that, uh, Dan Lewis in the chat said uh, your customer service via the web store is first class. Well, you might be on the wrong website. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I, you know, that that comes back to what you're talking about. You know, being really like engaged with what you're growing and what you're brewing, and you know, when you're ordering from a small place like yourself, you're not getting a call center. You're not getting an outsourced thing. You're getting the person that wants to there's get a, it to there's you. There's a funny story behind that. I was um, I was conversing with Sean Sherlock um, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, "Oh, the, these new releases and stuff. Um, I wouldn't mind getting hold of some." I said, "Yeah, not a problem at all, mate. Just um, let me know what you want, and just send an email to will at vandamanbrewing dot com dot au." He texted me back about five minutes later, and 
he said, I've just sent that email. Um, hopefully someone gets it. And then about 45 minutes later, he sent a follow-up text and he goes, geez, I'm a dickhead. I've just realised who the will at Van Diemen Brewing is. <laughs> <laughs> thought it was in some other department or something. <laughs> uh, well, now if a Sean uh, Falkhorn Brewery, part of the rebranded Mighty Craft was founders first. So he's probably got a team behind him that's doing all that no, for him now. No, no doubt. <laughs> um, Judd Owen in the chat as well echoes the, uh, the, the excellent service coming out of, the, out of the web store. I want to know how we get our hands on some um, Van Diemen steaks and some Van, Van Diemen lamb chops. Where does that meat go? The problem with that is that... Um, all of that that's got to go through it's got to go through a registered abattoir in order for it to then be commercially sold or um utilized so it would be wonderful and i know ashley at two meter has the same sort of problem is that it's um it would be wonderful to grow the um animals on the place butcher it i mean we butcher the pigs um but we only use them for ourselves Mm. Uh, we butcher lambs we butcher um cattle as well but it's all for our own use, whereas in an ideal world, um, we'd be able to have it there, butcher it, hanging in the cool room, ready to go on a, on a spit roast or on a barbecue or whatever when, whenever events are there. But, yeah, there's that link that we need to have an abattoir or a registered killer to, in order to, to do that, which is probably safe. I'm not going to argue with it. Yeah. I know, but it's frustrating. I, it's, is it a, a string to your bow too far? <laughs> <laughs> Ricky's abattoir. drinking abattoir. <laughs> I think there's a fair bit of paperwork in brewing, but I think there's probably a tad more in um, killing beasts and stuff. So, yeah. bloody, bloody red tape. <laughs> uh, don't, don't get me started at ten o'clock on a Monday night. You mentioned um, events. Do you do events out at the brewery? Uh, we do minimal ones. Like um, we're not open to the public. Um, I think that's probably going to change in the next 12 to 18 months. Um, yeah, we're going to step sideways and, and probably go into hospitality. Um, I say that through gritted teeth. <laughs> um, uh, no, it's, we, do, we, do, we did a festival last year, the smallest beer festival in the world called From the Wilderness, um, 30 people, um, four breweries. Um, everyone was served by the brewers and it was phenomenal. Um, but yeah, outside of that, it's just, we're not set up for hosting. Um, yeah, we just, we don't have the facilities in order to receive a huge amount of people and stuff. And, um, I know people would love to come out and and see the farm and stuff, but we got machinery moving around and livestock and, um, it just, it doesn't work. They're they're two very separate beasts, hospitality and, and production brewing. Uh, and then you rope into that farming at, um, Regrettably, something's got to give, and and that um, that thing is the, the hospitality side. The idea of a thirty people four brewer festival is pretty good, though. Hey, Dave, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of the dream. <laughs> it was. It was. Who were the other three brewers? Uh, we had Bruni Island, we had Ocho, and we had Hobart Brewing. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. What's the what's the community like in Tassie for for all the breweries? Oh, Dave McGill and I are probably the old guys, so um, 
uh, look, it's really strong. We, we, it always has been and it always will be. We all lean on each other when we need something. There's, um, it's obviously a very close-knit community, so um, I think we know what's going on with each of us um, pretty intimately. Um, I mean, look, everyone's a competitor, but at the same time, they're your best friends. So it, um, and I think, that's, I, I think that can be extended largely to the Australian brewing uh, community. Um, not necessarily just segregated to states, and that's that's probably what the best thing about the brewing industry is that ability to um, pick up the phone or send a message off or, or run into someone that you haven't seen um, after 12, 18 months or something, and just continue a conversation that you had somewhere over over quite a few drinks and stuff, and and pick it up. And it's the people that um, that's the people that make the industry, and they're our biggest. Um, sort of that's what we need to invest in because they're our biggest ally and our, our biggest sort of um, strength to this industry. I'm pretty sure I've seen the CEO or GM of um, Stone and Wood slash Fermentum shoveling out your mash tun on social media before. So, yeah. I think the first time he's ever seen any hard labour. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what does the next sort of the near future look like for you uh, in terms of beer or, or farming? Uh, beer, beer. We're just con- going to continue, obviously, putting down. Under, as I said, we're, we're looking for this next spontaneous window. To we've got some some freshly emptied barrels um, sitting there that I want to backfill with some spontaneous beer. Um, there's in tank at the moment. There's a new estate uh, saison. Um, so we're just we're just making sure that that's right and ready to go. If that gets out before Christmas, it'd be nice. Um, yeah, I think there's. I've got. I'm doing something with raspberries next week. Um, clover flowers the following week. Um, What's the yeah. what does a clover flower bring to a beer? Guess no, we'll find guess, out. Guess we'll find out. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, and I think next year, I think we're probably going to head down this hospitality path of putting something on at the very... The, the challenge at the moment is just trying to work out what that facility looks like. Um, is it bells and whistles and we jump in the deep end? Um, or is it something that's far more akin to the to the setting and um, we don't necessarily have this huge um, setup and stuff? So we're just trying to work through that and, and what it looks like and more to the point how we can manage it feasibly. Um, well, it's, I work much like a lot of people. I work too hard during the week to have my weekends held up with um, with working and things, especially with three young kids. And now that they're all starting to do weekend sport and stuff, it's um, it lays a little bit of responsibility on my wife and a little bit too much pressure, which I'm always said is not the reason why I got into business for myself. Um, uh, I've always seen Dad as a farmer have that flexibility of being able to to turn up at an event or a, a, a sports thing or whatever and and have that freedom. Yes, you, you pay for it and you, you've got to catch up that time at some point, but that flexibility is key and hospitality in my head sort of holds us. The, the times that I want to be away from the brewery are the times when everyone else wants to be there. So it's this sort of push and pull that we've got to try and work out, Yeah, which we're not, we're not the first and we won't be the last to have to go through that. Hospitality is great until it's the weekend and then you realise that. Yeah. Uh, any more questions from you, Dave? Yeah, I want to know about Golden Pheasants, Will. Talk to Golden you about it. Uh, they are the most beautiful bird I've ever seen. So we had 
we have we have peacocks that walk, that um, oh, there's three there's three flocks of peacocks that um, roam around the farm uh, in certain pockets and hollows and things. Um, but this golden pheasant was at Mum and Dad's, which is oh, five six k down the road. Um, and yeah, we caught it the other day just with my bare hands. It, it ran into a, a fence and um, was slightly stunned. And it's the most brilliant bird ever seen. If you, if you get off this once, crack another beer and go and find a photo of a golden pheasant because they I are up on your socials. I saw that that video of it, uh, with your with your young fella. Yeah. Um, I like. I don't know if it's just the, just the video, but like, it looked like it moved like a lizard afterwards. The way it no, looked- I, I didn't realize quite what they were until. Uh, 12 or 18 months ago when it started running around mum and dad's garden and the first I ever saw of it was I was driving down the driveway and I saw this burst of red and gold out my right-hand side and it was like, what the hell is that? And I spoke to mum and dad about it and they said, oh, you know, there's a golden pheasant around and you you reckon he looked good in that video. You should see him pampering to his females. It is, uh, you wouldn't see better movements on Swan Street or anything at two o'clock on in this yeah. No way you would. <laughs> what what is a golden pheasant? Is it just like a a regular pheasant but different coloured or? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is it, well, normal pheasants normal pheasants have a bit of colour about them, but this bloke was just. Um, uh, do you want me to find a photo of it, or have you I've, got I've just looked it up, and uh, yeah, it's they're stunning. They look amazing. Oh, it's, it's yeah. It's the kind of bird that if I saw, I'd be like, "Well, that doesn't seem real." If I'm, you know, on a farm in Tassie, that's it, like something from a fairy tale. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, they're too. <laughs> I'm not sure that they're, they're very. Even though they've got a heap of nice feathers on them, their frame when I was cradling it in my hand is um yeah pretty small. I don't think you'd bother eating. <laughs> I was gonna say because pheasant like they eat it. UK, they eat quite a bit of pheasant, don't they? I know that from Raoul Dahl books more than anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, any more questions, Dave, after the golden pheasant chat? That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, where do people find you on the internet? www.vandemonbrewing.com.au or van underscore demon on any of the socials. D-I-E-M-A-N. Why the A-N? Uh, because it, historically it was um, flipped between E and A. Um, it, was, it, it, it did land on E um, to, to be used. But even now you'll see some old maps and stuff and it'll be Bandy Man's land. Um, that and Cascade actually held the um, trademark to Van D. Men. Um, ah. Setting up, so we sort of flew in under the radar with an A, and they didn't notice. And it was a, it's for the reason that we're talking about it now. It's a point of difference and something to talk about. And yeah, it still frustrates the hell out of some people sometimes. No, you spelled it pro- incorrectly. It frustrates hell out of me just if I'm writing things and going, wait, are they? And then having to like okay, Google it. Uh, genuine, I did it to annoy people like you. Yeah, thanks. I'm sure. I'm sure that's why. <laughs> um, Dave, where do people find you? At Dave on Twitter. Send me an email, dave at alivertime.com. Uh, and you can get me at alivertime.com, uh, hypothetical institute for your 
conspiracy needs. Uh, subscribe to the Beer Together channel if you're listening to this on um, on the podcast, and you can tune in uh, eight thirty Monday nights, maybe nine o'clock if the Crafty Pints doing a cabal thing that we don't realise is happening. Uh, but it's a good double feature, I reckon, if you're part of the cabal. Uh, Let's we'll a bit of beer together, no worries. And uh, they've just relaunched the cabal, James McCrafty Pint, so head over to a site and check out the relaunch because you'll get delicious beer and, and freebies. Uh, and speaking of, if you haven't updated your address and you're a patron, uh, you should do it because I've got all these bottles in my house that I will happily drink. Uh, but I want to give them to you. So please um, update your address or email of me if you're not sure how to do that. Uh, and, yeah, the next patron beer has uh, already been bottled. And I've got an artist lined up for the label. They don't know that yet, but I'm going to give them some money and they're going to make us a pretty picture. And it's going to be sick. Dave, are you excited for this one? Yeah, I have no idea what it's going to taste like, even though I've got the tasting notes. Yeah, yeah. It's a beer that, uh, talking to this brewer, I don't think he could probably sell, and if he did, he probably wouldn't sell that much of it. So it's perfect for us because I'm very excited to taste it. <laughs> um, thanks so much again, Will, for, for spending the time with us. And, uh, yeah, really look forward to, to tasting the farm line and uh, seeing what seeing the next 12 months of delicious beers from you and hopefully actually visiting. I was supposed to visit earlier this year and it didn't pan out. So I think it would be nice when we were all able to catch up for beers wherever it is. Yeah, for sure. Cheers, guys. Beautiful, Luke. Thanks. 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 Thanks.